0: Hey, thank you for joining us today.
1: I welcome you to the place where we revel in wrong think. And that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we've got it right and everybody else is wrong. This is just a place to question the official narrative, to question some of the stories and issues that are being presented to us and hopefully arrive at a clear and independent understanding of what's really going on as well as what you and I can do about it. So, you know, if I'm doing my job correctly... When you uh, finish listening to this episode, you should come away more certain of who you are and what you stand for than uh, who or what you should be against and how angry you should be and, you know, where to direct your rage. There's a lot of anger out there right now. My goal is to not bring more anger into the situation. By the way, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light, LED Light Bulbs. This is the next generation of light bulb, and it, uh, it does some truly amazing things. And HSL Ammo, that would be my friend uh, Spencer Worthington, HSLammo.com. He is uh, probably the truest ambassador to the Second Amendment of anybody who I have met. And when I say this, I mean there are a lot of people in the last year, especially, who have been buying guns So a lot of newbies to, uh, you know, the shooting sports. Spencer is the guy you see at the range who will take time from his own activities. In other words, when he could be standing there sending rounds down range, often you'll find him helping people who are, you know, for the first time getting out there or who are new to the shooting sports and just trying to get a feel for how to how to properly use whatever, you know, gun they've purchased. And he'll uh, offer targets to them, let them shoot his guns and so forth. Just a truly great ambassador, and uh, I just want to mention that because I'm very proud to have him as a sponsor here on the show as well as on the network. So, we got some fun stuff to talk about today, and I say fun in the sense that this is definitely going to make you think. On tap, we will talk about uh, word tyranny and cultural balkanization. have a marvelous essay from Richard M. Ebling that I'll be sharing a few excerpts from. I'll, I'll warn you right now, Richard Ebling is an educator, and so he he writes some pretty detailed, lengthy essays, but they are totally worth it because they will give you uh, a great historical perspective and and it, from a from a principled standpoint, this guy is just a, a marvel. So we've got that coming up. You're hearing a lot of talk about censorship these days too. And I saw an essay that come into my email inbox last night from Thomas L. Knapp. This is from EverythingVoluntary.com. Kind of a handy primer on what censorship is and what it isn't. We're hearing the word a lot these days, but it, like, like a lot of words, uh, you know, when, when the definitions start getting twisted or stretched, well, when a word can mean anything, it doesn't mean anything at all. Like racism. Everything is racist. I think back to the line from uh, Syndrome in The Incredibles, you know, well, when everyone's special, no one's special. Same thing applies. When everything is racist, nothing is racist. When when everything is, is censored, nothing is censored. It's the importance of defining your terms when you discuss things. We'll talk about that a little bit, too. Also, as much as we may want to believe the mandates will be lifting and things will start looking normal again soon, there are still some issues to be worked out and masks, yep, front and center. That's one of the big issues. Uh, some experts, by the way, are now saying mask separation anxiety is a real thing. Now, I don't know. Is that like a legitimate, uh, is that going to be in the DSM, you know, kind of uh, mental condition? Could be. But I'm definitely seeing uh, what, what they talk about in this article. And that is there, there are people who are very loath to, to step back from the masks. They, they get a sense. It's like Linus in his security blanket. We'll talk a little bit about that, too. But let's start with a story about masks. I don't know if you've seen the video of a 60-year-old woman being taken down by a police officer in a Galveston bank. No, she wasn't there to rob the bank. He took her down because she wasn't wearing a mask. And it's, it's an interesting story. I mean, she's traveling. She's in an RV. She could not use the drive through because of that. So she went into Bank of America in Galveston, Texas, looking to close her account that's all she wanted. I want to close my account, get my money, and be on my way. And the bank was like, nope, not without a mask. You got to wear a mask. You you know, you have to bend the knee if you want to uh, to do business. And it raises some interesting questions. You know, they called the police. Well, she won't put on a mask. Well, then you're trespassed. And um, the the officer just escalated, 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 until he finally, you know, threw her down, broke her foot, handcuffed her. It's uh, It's really disturbing. I honestly... You know, I, I don't say this with bravado. I'm a very nonviolent person, but I would have been in handcuffs too had I been in that bank seeing that happen. I, I would have had to say something and step up, and and it, it, it would not have been pretty. But what was crazy was most of the customers in the bank just kind of stood there, just, Ugh, what? What are we supposed to do? If this is what the new normal is, Ugh, I don't know. That's that's pretty disturbing. And it raises the question, can private businesses legally and morally force their customers to wear masks? Robert E. Wright, in an article for the American Institute for Economic Research, has, has given this a pretty thorough treatment. I like his take on this, too. He says the most shocking aspect of the viral video from Galveston wasn't the police brutality directed against a senior citizen, because unfortunately we've all grown accustomed to state-sanctioned violence. But he says what's shocking is was that a major U.S. bank would expose itself to such negative publicity, civil lawsuits, even regulatory chastisement, by trying to enforce a private mask mandate. In other words, one that's no longer even mandated by government against depositors. You remember Texas lifted its mask mandate. They've opened fully, but the bank still called the police on this lady. Robert E. Wright says the United States in the 21st century is, after all, a nation of laws. Many, many, many laws, regulations, administrative rulings and such business leaders that do not react quickly and intelligently to changing circumstances may be hoisted by the petard of the overgrown regulatory state to the detriment of their shareholders. He says much of this regulatory guidance on the masking issue presumes that a state or local mask mandates in place, not just CDC guidelines. And while CDC guidelines may be constitutional, de facto federal mandates disguised as guidelines are not. So he says, for starters, any bank that knows its business should prohibit anyone from entering the bank wearing a mask, which is standard bank robber attire. And while bank robbery data for 2019 and 2020 are not yet official, clearly, Many robberies occurred in 2020. The notorious Too Tall Bandit remains at large, presumably after his 15th hit last December. The same month, Masked Banditti struck four banks in Cambridge alone, including two in Harvard Square. Now, vault cash constitutes just a small percentage of bank assets these days, but shouldn't the FDIC immediately close any bank that risks depositors, stockholders, and ultimately taxpayers' money so recklessly? How could the bank's private security not handle an unarmed elderly woman? Is the bank free-riding on the taxpayers of Galveston by not supplying its own security? Isn't it announcing to bank robbers that it cannot defend its own vault cash? Robert E. Wright says what the Galveston Bank branch did was especially grievous because it denied a depositor timely access to her funds. Now, in the past, banks used such tactics to stave off bank runs, and in one infamous occasion, a bank caused a panic simply because it did not clearly communicate with a depositor who went away thinking the bank was out of money rather than that he was out of money at the bank. Any business policy that endangers bank solvency runs afoul of numerous financial regulations, if not explicitly, at least implicitly. Depositors might withdraw funds en masse in protest or simply out of fear that the bank in question doesn't know its business. Now listen close because here he gets to the good part. Yes, the bank is a private entity, but that doesn't mean that it can lawfully or morally treat its employees or customers however it wishes, even in some hypothetical libertarian land. Except for Walter Block and a few others, for example, he says, no lover of liberty would think it acceptable for the bank to enslave anyone. It is true that mandating a mask is a far cry short of slavery but it's also the case that forcing someone to wear a mask with alleged medical qualities in other words staying safe without a government mandate to do so is a far cry beyond no shoes no shirt no service he abbreviates this by the, by the way to ns times 3 Most importantly, though, any private entity that enforces a medical-grade mask mandate may be practicing medicine without a license. That's a very serious offense in all 50 U.S. states. And if some highly paid lawyer can magically turn a regular business into a health care provider, the business would then be subject to HIPAA, and likely in breach of it. Can you see where he's taking this? I'm thinking maybe there's an enterprising lawyer out there thinking, thinking, yeah. I see exactly what he's saying. Private entities enforcing medical masking may be running afoul of Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act or even the Rehabilitation Act if they don't provide reasonable alternative accommodations. Separate hours, rooms for those whose real doctors have told them not to mask.
0: We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: This is such a marvelous article from Robert E. Wright, and it's from the American Institute for Economic Research. Again, I want to give a shameless plug. Sign up for their emails. You will not regret this, particularly if you're one of those people like me who is, is interested in real data, not just government pronouncements, not whatever, you know, Dr. Fauci has divined, you know, he must say, to, to keep us all enthralled to, to whatever his advice is about uh, masking up or the pandemic or how scared are we supposed to be today? This is, this is some pretty serious analysis, and I think they have had the best, most reasonable, and I think also the most accurate take on what all of these lockdown provisions and all of these mandates and all of the uh, the horrific overreach that's taken place in the last year AIER has done a better job of showing it for what it is and and being unflinching in in telling the truth I can't look at the mainstream media and and feel any any kind of comparable you know uh a bit of effort has taken place. They just simply have a narrative to toe, and, and it's the narrative of whatever those in power are saying, that's what we say. It's kind of scary. Back to the article here about, uh, can private businesses legally and morally force customers to wear masks? Robert E. Wright says, trying to enforce a more lenient face covering rule under the no, shoots, no shoes, no shirt, no service precedent is also fraught. He says these rules of no shoes, no shirt, no service were created ostensibly to keep hippies out of stores circa 1970. But they've also been handy for excluding other undesirables, including a much younger and poorer version of himself and sundry other hyphenated Americans. Now, he says, I don't claim that these rules are inherently racist, only that they have been used by racists, which makes them suspect given that they serve no clear purpose. The no-shoes, no-shirt, no-service rules falter legally at the retail level when inconsistently applied, as they often are. And he gives us an example. You visit any store on the Jersey Shore in high season, and you're bound to see topless young men and young women wearing nothing more than a thong and waterproof brazier, happily shopping away. But then I saunter in with just a European-style speedo, and carnage ensues because I'm creating a negative externality, allegedly, while the younger folks are creating positive ones. Indubitably, he says, inconsistency also applies from or also stems rather from context. Imagine the silly catch 22 of a shoe or clothing store with a rigidly applied no shoes, no shirt, no service rule. I'm sorry, but I'll have to call the cops and have you tasered if you try to come into my shoe or shirt store without shoes or a shirt. Now, he says, I see uh, shirtless women in stores all the time because they're wearing one-piece dresses. But I've also seen a man wearing a torn tank top in a liberal part of Georgia told that he couldn't shop because what he was wearing was not really a shirt. Really? Or was it really his MAGA cap and skull face mask that gave umbrage? Walk-in retail uh, NS times three rules, no shoes, no shirt, no service, are a bit different from rules established by clubs or by businesses with established customers where contracts express or implied proliferate. Robert E. Wright says one can relatively cheaply buy shoes or a shirt at a more amenable establishment, but clubs and banks require investment of money and or time, making voting with one's feet more costly. Now, clubs can establish any rules they like so long as they are legal, but they also have to establish procedures for changing those rules that require checks like due due notice or quorums and so forth. Moreover, morally, if not contractually and legally, They should allow membership transfers or refunds whenever a rule change takes place, even if it simply adjusts its hours of operation or implements a new mandate that a piece of clothing, be it a face covering or a blazer, be worn on the premises. He says business with established customers inhabit sketchier ground because the contract with customers is often more implied than explicit, especially in weird areas like mask wearing. Suffice it to say, like clubs, they cannot break occupational licensing or other laws. They have more discretion in changing hours of operation and other terms of service, but if they try to block customers from changing service providers, they may well run afoul of antitrust or even racketeering laws, depending on the nature of the barriers put in place. So outside of health care and food prep requirements predating COVID, forcing employees to wear masks without a government mandate to do so also must run afoul of numerous labor laws and OSHA regulations. It is true that employees who don't like to mask can quit. But the same could be said for employees being sexually harassed. Should they have to quit too? The law says no. And forcing someone, especially someone who has survived COVID or had a vaccine, to wear a mask eight hours a day is a form of harassment, even if all employees are instructed to wear masks. A boss who propositions all employees, regardless of age, gender, and so forth, isn't guilty of discrimination. But he or she has harassed employees because the behavior is legally and morally unacceptable. Depriving employees of oxygen and normal human interaction without clear cause, that's also unacceptable. If you don't believe me, just ask 2019 or 1900 or 1800. Now, he says, at least one lawyer's page, which I refuse to link to, asserts wrongly that the legal presumption is that the masks protect others so employers can mandate them because employers have a right and even a responsibility to protect, in quotation marks, their employees and customers. Without a government mandate, though, that argument could be used to justify any form of humiliation or torture. What if an employer claimed, after hiring employees, that kilts, or mercury purges serve to protect others. Employers cannot be left to decide what constitutes harassment or public health and safety. In terms of tort law, businesses in places without government mask mandates should now be more concerned about getting sued for the obvious harms caused by masks than from people contracting COVID in their businesses. Transmission is difficult to track, which is why contact tracing was such a bust. In practical terms, he says, businesses may fear that if they do not keep up pandemic LARPing, frightened members of the public might take their business elsewhere. But any decent business knows how to handle heterogeneous customer preferences, transition back to normal by initiating masked and maskless hours of or locations, and then allow customers and employees to opt into either based on their preferences. That seems so reasonable. But as Robert E. Wright points out, needing to sick the coercive power of the state on peaceful people is not good management practice and suggests that harm is being done to employees and customers. Harm that's definitely greater and more actionable than any harm caused by not enforcing mandates that governments are rapidly abandoning as ineffective. By the way, there's a link in his article to the uh, video of this woman being taken down in this Galveston bank. And if you can watch it without your blood pressure, you know, taking a little spike, you are a stronger person than me. Or you've recently taken your medication. That's, I, I don't know which, but it's, it's, a, it's a brutal thing to see. And she is not being violent, and she is, I mean, she's clearly disagreeing with them. But, again, it, it has to come back to the, why were the police called in the first place? When did this become a police matter? I mean, if you could show me where this woman is doing harm, I might be able to agree, yeah, it was necessary to to have the the law come in and correct this behavior, but it wasn't. There's no mask mandate in Texas, but Bank of America, for whatever reason, is, you know, still, they're all down with that. No, we've got to make sure that we're towing the line and everybody is, is obeying. And apparently there is such a thing as mask anxiety, mask separation anxiety, I should say, This is a story from the Denver channel. A friend shared this with me last night. In fact, when we come back from the break here in just a few moments, we'll we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, If this is a legit medical or mental condition, I was going to say disorder, but I don't even know if it's that. Sorry, I'm not schooled enough in this to be making these kind of determinations, but this much I do see. There are people who are very, very terrified of not wearing a mask in public. Even though cases are falling, deaths are... At last I heard, there were actually no deaths like last week in my home state of Utah from COVID. But people still cling to that mask. It's, it's the outward symbol of compliance and safety. Alright, we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: So I'm asking kind of a personal question, and it's rhetorical, but do you get nervous when you're not wearing your mask? I'm just, I'm just curious. Personally, as you may have guessed, I look for any excuse not to wear one. In terms of, you know, I I assess when I walk up to a, <clears throat> excuse me, to a business. Do they have a mask enforcer up front? And i I will sometimes put the mask on. I, I have what I call my speedo mask, in that it simply covers my mouth and nose. You know what needs to be covered, and nothing else. Uh, but uh, I may slip that on to get past the uh, mask enforcer but I won't keep it on inside the store. Once I get in the store, I go do my business and, and it's done. But uh, some stores are very, very aggressive about this. You know, Costco, they'll follow you around. They'll hound you. They'll tell you, get out if you don't have the mask. And I'm seeing stores that say they're going to continue to do this. Um, there's a grocery store here in Utah that uh, has been extremely aggressive about, uh, about enforcing this um, target same way. But now I read that there is such a thing as mask separation anxiety. And I think, ah, crap. They've broken us. <laughs> they've, they've turned us into a, a bunch of neurotics who are afraid of, or hypochondriacs who are afraid that, uh, you know, everywhere we go, everybody's laden with disease. This is an article by Ash Har Kwarishi. This is from the Denver Channel. And uh, s- experts say stress, mass, I'm sorry, experts, coronavirus and stress experts say mask separation anxiety is real. The article says for those who are fully vaccinated, the CDC says it's safe to take your mask off in certain situations. But after a year of never leaving home without a face mask, some people may be uneasy with the idea of letting go of the protection. For the better part of a year, public service announcements... propaganda, political leaders and health experts have been urging Americans to don cloth face masks to slow the spread of COVID-19. Dr. Adiranki Pedersen, an instructor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, says a lot of us have been able to to do that condition ourselves to do that. Let's try this again. A lot of us have been able to do that condition ourselves to this new type of behavior of, I get my purse, I get my car keys, I get my mask. Ah, oh, crap, I catch myself doing this too. <laughs> Shoot. No, I do. I check and make sure that I have a mask with me just in case. Anyway, Dr. Pedersen says, with the late, while the latest CDC guidelines say it's okay for fully vaccinated people to gather with one another indoors without a mask, it takes time to process that. And she says, we have to acknowledge the fact that our bodies might not respond to that intellectual or logical recommendation right away. Like grief, everyone's experience and comfort level will be different. So she says, your family members might be ready to take their mask off and ready to follow the CDC guidelines as they've stated them. But you might have some hesitation and some anxiety. And that's okay. And at the same time, a lot of people remain vaccine-hesitant according to pew research while more americans say they plan to get vaccinated 30% still say they don't plan to by the way i am one of that 30% i really i really don't want to it's going to be curious to see how uh, how the the vaccine uh, you know the vaccine proof uh, or at least your vaccination proof is going to become kind of your passport if things go the way they continue to go or continue going the way they're headed right now Pedersen says, while we continue to push vaccinations and encourage people to get vaccinated, everybody's going to experience a different kind of social context when it comes to their families and when it comes to work. 57% of Americans say they believe it will be a year or more before things get back to pre-pandemic normal, including 14% who say, oh, it's going to take more than two years. Dr. Pedersen says it's important to acknowledge that everyone is experiencing this pandemic in their own unique way, she says, I really encourage people, if you have a family member or coworker who says, you know, I'd still like us to keep our mask on for now, I think it's okay to say, well, let's delay this next step. In the end, experts say we're all in this together and one size does not fit all. Really? Well, I'd sure like to see more of that thinking applied in terms of uh, how, you know, how these mask mandates are, are being enforced. If it isn't supposed to be one size fits all, maybe there should be a little more flexibility. I'm not seeing much of that. All right, shifting gears. Let's talk about the word censor. Thomas L. Knapp has a great article on everythingvoluntary.com. Censor: When a word means everything, it means nothing. And he says some words carry emotional force such that using them creates an immediate negative reaction on the part of the listener or reader. That makes such words useful until they get overused and misused so much that they cease to have the effect. Lately, the, tr- the trending creep people out to get them on my side, word of choice, is censor or censorship. Now, he says most of us support free speech. None of us want to be censored ourselves. Most of us don't want others censored either. But what do those words actually mean? And he provides a dictionary. This is according to Oxford Dictionaries. To censor is to examine a book, movie, etc. officially and suppress unacceptable parts of it. That's the verb. A censor noun is an official who examines material and suppresses any parts that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. Now, implicit in both of those definitions is that censorship is an act of the state, backed by force of law, and if necessary, the physical force of government agents. But Thomas Knapp says, I've often explained censorship this way. If I tell you that you may not sing Auld Lang Syne, or I will send police to break up the performance and haul you off to jail, I am censoring, or at least attempting to censor you. On the other hand, if I tell you that you may not sing Auld Lang Syne on my front porch at 3 a.m., and by the way, get off my porch, it's 3 in the morning, I'm not censoring you. You're still free to sing the song anywhere else at any other time, just not on my property while I'm trying to sleep which maps neatly, I think, to Twitter and Facebook deciding who gets to post what on their platforms. They can't stop you from using other platforms to say whatever it is they don't want you to say. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, this maps less neatly to Apple, Google, and Amazon colluding to destroy one of those other platforms, Parler, seemingly on behalf of government officials who think it's their business who says what and where. Thankfully, Parler survived and returned, but we've definitely got some edge cases going that certainly at least resemble censorship. And he says that I was admittedly somewhat asleep at the switch on until that wake-up call. Recently, though, he says I've had to add a third example to my explanation, though. Some friends of mine, very libertarian friends, in fact, recently held that Dr. Seuss Enterprises is censoring books it chooses not to publish. So here's explanation of censorship part three. If I choose not to sing Auld Lang Syne myself, I'm not censoring the song. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty tells Alice in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. So his point is there seems to be a lot of Humpty Dumpty usage of the word censorship lately. And if we're not careful, abusing it to to mean anything I don't like may drain it of its rightful argumentative power and leave us in the grip of the real thing. It's an interesting take, but I, I get his point. And I've seen this happen, you know, with, with other words as well. You know, for a long time, you know, at least in conservative circles, well, that's unconstitutional, which was just kind of a way of expressing disapproval. You know, there's, there's words like hate, the unspecified predicate. Well, this uh, person is accused of, uh, of belonging to a hate group. Ooh, a hate group, what does that mean? See, they never really specify. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's, who specializes in, in uh, going out and finding hate groups that are, that are promoting hate. Well, we know for sure that they're accused of something, but what exactly does it mean to hate? That's left kind of nebulous, and that's, it's actually left up to the emotional associations of whoever happens to be listening. And by being imprecise and by being less than specific, it opens you up to all kinds of abuse. This is the very same principle that Article 58 was, uh, was used to to enforce, uh, you know, sending people to the gulag in the Soviet Union. Article 58, you are accused of engaging in anti-Soviet activities. Well, did it really specify what precisely are anti-Soviet activities? I mean, come on, we we know exactly the difference between murder and manslaughter. But when you say something like uh, anti-Soviet activities, you're just throwing a very broad generalization out there that could pretty much be a catch-all for anything. And so it is with words like hate or racism, and sometimes even censorship. So how do we avoid this kind of confusion? Well, you know, this I'm talking about this on the level of individual discussion or debate. But I think it's a very helpful thing when you're talking with someone and and when terms like this come up, things that are an unspecified predicate, it's totally okay to ask somebody, before we go any further, can we at least define our terms to make sure that we're talking about the same thing? Because oftentimes you'll find we're talking about two very, very different things. In fact, they may be so different that maybe even a, a productive discussion isn't possible asking politicians by the way to define their terms you're not going to make friends with them they don't like that it takes away their wiggle room but that's all the more reason why you should insist on let's make sure
0: we're talking about the same thing here this is the Brian Hyde show this is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks again for being part of my growing
1: audience of wrong thinkers. If you have made it this far into this segment of the show, I'm guessing that you found something worthwhile. And I appreciate you sticking around. Now, if I could ask a small favor, please consider sharing this with friends let other people know hey I found a guy who talks about stuff from something other than a red versus blue perspective and uh, who maybe uh, leaves me a little more sure of who I am and what I stand for at the end of the day I would greatly appreciate it if you if you think about it too. go to my show notes at the brianhydeshow.com these will be the show notes for March 19th down at the bottom of the page you'll find a place where you can click to subscribe to the podcast. In other words, to get the notification every time I post a new episode. Typically, I do two hours a day, Monday through Friday, and, uh, you know, minus commercials, uh, that comes out to about roughly 40 minutes uh, per hour. But if you would become a subscriber, I would greatly appreciate it. In fact, if you would consider taking it one step further, if you find value in the material that I'm sharing with you, consider becoming a, a sponsor or becoming a patron and there's a link there that uh, can accomplish this as well and it's it's very painless could be a dollar a month could be 5 dollars a month or 10 dollars a month i treat those funds as absolutely sacred because this i believe there's a stewardship here and i'm i'm just going to be blunt i believe i will stand before god one day to be accountable for how i used my voice and how i used this platform and other platforms to try to, to speak the truth to the best of my knowledge so this ain't about, uh, hey, you know, daddy needs a new Corvette. This is about, uh, I love this work. I consider this uh, something I was born to do. And I take it seriously enough that uh, that I expect I'll be held accountable for it. I want to have a clear conscience when I stand before my maker. All right, that's a long explanation. But again, thank you for being part of my audience. I want to share with you uh, parts of an essay from Richard M. Ebling. This was published by the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. <clears throat> it's titled, Welcome to Word Tyranny and Cultural Balkanization. And this is a very lengthy essay. Most of his are. He's he's a very thorough educator and writer. But he's also extremely principled, which is what makes this worthwhile. If you're going to sit down and read something this weekend, this would be the article I would recommend. I'll just give you a little excerpt here, just kind of give you a little uh, little taste of it Richard Ebling says the identity politics warriors call for an end to a colorblind framework a rejection that society is made of individuals who should be considered the ones deserving and possessing rights and this should be of concern to anybody who really you know values their rights and values their protection from being preyed upon by others it starts with the individual whereas identity politics is nothing more than a particularly ugly form of of collectivism, just as racism is an ugly form of collectivism. Different sides of the same coin. Richard Ebeling says America has entered into a new era of thought control. Now, he reminds us, back in the 60s, there was a determined campaign by many conservatives to resist the free speech movement symbolically headquartered on the Berkeley campus of the University of California. Then, the idea was to respect people's right to say what was on their mind, even when it was considered crude, rude, and offensive. That many of the students involved in this effort were often radically inconsistent and disrespectful of others' property clouded the message. But at the end of the day, freedom of speech was the underlying principle. Now, he says many in the generation born in the 1990s and early 21st century probably know little or nothing about comedians Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce. Both of these comedians broke various taboos in the arena of public stand up comedy. Mort Saul took the attitude that any political issue and every public or political figure was fair game for satire, ridicule, and debunking. And it wasn't so much that listeners necessarily agreed with or shared Saul's criticisms or satires of the notable in society. In fact, often very much to the contrary. It was the idea that no matter what the stature of a celebrity or politician, there was room and a reasonable need for those who will remind us that very often the emperor has no clothes. We should not be deluded into thinking that just because they might be famous or holding high government office, that made them necessarily superior to you and me. And very often, they could be even more misguided and wrong-headed than many of the rest of us. It's just that their positions, especially in government, make them more dangerous due to the wider social impact of things they have the authority to do. And he goes through here and talks about how there was a time when shocking words were viewed as part of freedom of speech. He tells a little bit about Lenny Bruce. And he points out that many of us still feel uncomfortable or offended when language and various particular words are used in either demeaning, humiliating, or vulgar ways, and therefore in poor taste, as it used to be said. But it shouldn't be considered the duty and responsibility of government to police our words and where and in whose company we might use them. Policing should be considered a matter of individual choice and decision-making concerning what to watch or listen to and with whom to associate and interact. He says once government's introduced into the picture, societal conflicts and controversies are inescapably made affairs of state with political battles over the who and the how of what people may speak or write. Better a social order in which there might be personal offense from the words of others, but with the voluntary option to not listen or read, rather than political dictates and coerced punishments for those using the wrong words at the wrong time, in the wrong place, or to the wrong person. And then he speaks of the return of the politically correct language censors, saying that today we're faced with a new campaign of censorship, accompanied with the demand not just to ban the use of certain words or phrases, but to insist they be replaced with other words and phrases that must be accepted and used if the potential word criminal is not to be found guilty of racism, sexism, or any other of a multitude of created groups and categories and for which the insensitive individual could face serious life and career-affecting consequences. This is, this is a great read. I, I wish I could go into more detail here, but time simply uh, will not allow. I like he he gives the example here you know some words uh, some languages with their meanings connotations and acceptable uses of uh, words phrases and terms are changing in every society so sometimes a socially demeaning word can over time continue to be used without the negative implication for instance the word slave A number of linguistic sources say this word originated from the word Slav, referring to certain groups of people living in Eastern Europe who were captured in the Middle Ages by others invading and and then forced into compulsory work, that is, made into slaves. Now, whether or not this this long-held etymology is correct or not, to call someone, past or present, a Slav no longer implies an inferior or subservient status to those who live in that part of Europe. But he says it's also the case that a word that has an insulting connotation in one language may not have such a necessary negative meaning in another. For example, it's become totally unacceptable for a white person to call a black American by what has become sanitized as the N-word. Yet the Russian version of this word, for instance, has not. And for the most part, still doesn't carry the offending sense that it does in English. It's merely the Russian word for a black person. If a Russian who knows nothing about the historicity of of that word in the American context, if they were to use it in the United States, the person would have no idea that in using it, any offense had been given. So times change, and as attitudes, understandings, and sensitivities change through time, so do the uses and non-uses of words. But Richard Ebling asks what happens when the determination of the use and meaning of words, phrases, and forms of humor, human interaction become hijacked by those who are determined to arrogate to themselves the lexicon of language, who insist that they, above all others in society, know what should be said and should not be said, and what words shall be imposed on everyone as near mandatory substitutes for the condemned and forbidden world uh, forbidden words. He says this is what we are presently existing in, a world of woke, political correctness identity politics and cancel culture and he gives uh, he gives an example here of uh, uh, manchester university in britain scraps the word mother and then you have the american institutions of higher learning actively training people in identity politics critical race theory intersectionality this is the child of marxist Mind manipulation. And if you fi- if you look at Marxism, if you've ever read Marx, I hope you have, you got to at least know what you're up against, you'll find that uh, what we see today is Marxism translated from economic terms to cultural terms. And my, it is so effective. So I'll have this link to Richard M. Ebling's essay. He just says, you know, keep in mind, before this new era of postmodern identity politics, that is, the the prior modern age of Enlightenment, Human beings foolishly believed in reason, evidence, and individual liberty. All of what is being insisted upon now used to be known as tyranny and criticized as dictatorship. How very silly, he says, many of us to presume that each of us was unique and distinct, separate from the imposed we. Well, we all live and learn. Check it out. It's in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com and thanks for being a listener.